Welcome to the program. We begin with dumb candidates. I love a good candidate who sticks their foot right in their mouth. We've seen a number of them. Normally, they're, you know, aspiring. They're they're the candidate that probably doesn't have a shot in whatever riding. But in this particular case, we're talking about Judy Scrow this morning, and she is the incumbent MP for Humber River Black Creek and was recently on a local television program speaking to an uh, African-Canadian woman uh, talking about Justin Trudeau and blackface. And get a load of this. This is what Judy Scrow has to say about black Canadians and what they think of Justin Trudeau wearing blackface. Those in the black community have told me that how much more love they have for the prime minister, that he wanted to have a black face. He took great pride in that, too, and that it's the, it's the media that have blown this into something that it shouldn't be, and that they are very supportive, and they're actually looking for finding more ways that they can show how much they support and love the prime minister. Are you kidding me? I... I don't get gobsmacked a lot, but that is a smack to the gob right there. How does Miss Scrow get off saying something like that? That is going to continue to reverberate. You watch that. It'll be on the campaign trail today. Already Jugmeet Singh has commented, said it's ludicrous. We'll hear more from Judy Scrow, perhaps, as she tries to clarify why it is she believes that black Canadians like the prime minister more because he took care with his costume, you see. He took, did you, did you notice the one he, where he dresses up in blackface in the whitewater rafting where he actually blacks out his knees? And the kind of care he takes to black out his hands? Well, he took care, you see, said Miss Scrow. So that's why. That's why people of color in this country, well, that's nice. He took care. Let's get to the election coverage and is something afoot with the NDP. I want to play for you here a little bit of the scene at Ryerson University yesterday. Incredible for Jugmeet Singh as he wanders through the campus and he can't really get more than a couple of feet. People are swarming him, taking selfies. Here's what it sounded like. Thank you. That's exactly what we're about. I love that. You want to do a selfie? Yeah, 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 I can do it here. Ready? One, two, three. One more. One, two, three. Oh, what a great picture. Awesome. Can I help you win? Yes, yes. Thank you it. so much. You've been an inspiration to me. Oh, like, thank you. That means a lot. And that went on and on and on. Now, that alone perhaps might not be something. But keep in mind that the general consensus is that Jugmeet Singh won the English language debate, or he was the most likable. And we've talked about on the program how people don't watch the debate, largely. I'm sure all of those millennials had other things to do. And so they don't watch the debate, but what they do hear is the reverberations afterwards. The sort of talking points. Sing one. Sing is likable. And all of it, combined with really a great campaign for Mr. Singh so far, has really now got this kind of a grassroots thing. And I'm, I'm telling you, we're in this situation now where we're deadlocked. You know this, we're totally deadlocked in the polls. And I'm what I call we're in lemming territory now. Because we are so close to the end, and people are really quite desperate to vote for something, and there is nothing to vote for in this election. It's And so 
this is where Singh's opportunity is now. Because could we get a big swing, a big push to the polls? Now, but here's part of the problem. Because millennials actually have to go out and vote. These young people that we see taking those photos, well, they have to go out and vote. Will they actually do that? Here's global Charmine Sumani, who tells us that the in the last federal election, all of the trends were really thrown off here. In 2015, voter turnout for the Canadian federal election for people between the ages of 18 to 24 went up from 38.8% to 57.1% as compared to the trends we've seen since the 1990s. I expect voter turnout overall will go down. I think last election was exceptional because we'd had three elections with the Harper government and there was a lot of appetite for change. That is Nelson Wiseman, political scientist there, talking about perhaps that the turnout will be down. That's conventional wisdom right now, and that generally means that young people don't vote. So at this point, we're not there. But keep your eye on it because there is a potential here for a bit of a surge for the NDP. And keep in mind, if Jugmeet Singh starts to gain, guess what that means? That means Andrew Scheer becomes prime minister, most likely, because that's the way the vote splits. Keep in mind, when we had the orange wave with Jack Layton, people talk about, oh, Jack Layton did so well. Well, what what did it mean for the country? It meant a Harper majority. Now, as for Andrew Scheer, he is in Quebec today talking immigration. He says he's going to close the loophole in the safe third country agreement that prevents asylum seekers from claiming refugee protection in Canada if they arrive at an official border checkpoint from a country that is considered safe, like the U.S. So if you show up in the U.S., then you're not supposed to be able to come through here. But there is a loophole in that that means that you can cross on foot through unofficial entry points and then can claim refugee status arriving in Canada, Scheer says that he will close that loophole and also hire an additional 250 border officers. When it comes to immigration, the choice in this election is crystal clear. A re-elected Liberal government under Justin Trudeau that will continue to ignore this critical issue. Driving down public support for immigration and costing taxpayers millions, possibly billions of dollars more, as more and more people enter Canada illegally or a new conservative government that will enforce the laws at our border, prioritize newcomers from violent and dangerous countries, and restore Canadians' faith in an immigration system that has served this country so well for so long. That is Conservative leader Andrew Scheer speaking this morning in Quebec, back here in Toronto. Here is the Liberal leader and the Liberal promise du jour. A re-elected Liberal government will lower taxes again for the middle class, saving the average family almost $600 every year. That matters to people. So we're going to get it done right away. Today, I can announce that cutting taxes for the middle class will be the first thing we do as a re-elected Liberal government. We did it before, and we'll do it again. I wouldn't say that if you were... <laughs> Whoops! I did it again. I've, I've dressed up before, I'll dress up again. Let's get to some Doug Ford panic, shall we? Exhibit A, Doug Ford. People here in Ontario are seeing what happens when politicians promise to be for the people and then cut the services they rely on. Larger classes for your kids, less support for your communities. That's the real cost of buck a beer. And now, Andrew Scheer wants Canadians to double down on conservative politicians like Doug Ford. 
twice the tax breaks for big polluters and the wealthy, and twice the cuts for you and your family. My friends, that's not the way it has to be. All right, that's Justin Trudeau talking about a little dofo and whether or not you're going to double dip. Well, maybe double down. You shouldn't double dip on the conservatives. From the start today, and this leads me to this, Ford loyalists speaking confidentiality, in confidence, pardon me, to Rob Benzie of the Toronto Star, have said that the premier of this province actually feels slighted by Andrew Scheer now and the conservatives because, of course, Mr. Ford is third rail for the federal conservatives, don't want anything to do with him. Even Jason Kenney's actually even been here campaigning for the conservatives and not Doug Ford. Joining me on the line is Rob Benzie from the Toronto Star. You can read his piece in the Toronto Star today. Thanks, Rob, for being on the program. Hey, my pleasure, Alan. What have you heard from the insiders within the conservative government, the PC government, about Mr. Ford being sidelined? Well, I mean, you know, the evidence is everywhere. First of all, he's not he's not out and about. We haven't seen him publicly since September 17th. And he's also, um, uh, you know, been asked to stay out, stay away from Andrew Scheer's campaign, and he's doing that. Uh, you have Jason Kenney, the Alberta premier in Toronto, campaigning, campaigning in Mr. Ford's riding, in fact, Alan. So uh, I think that was a bit... Um, uh, insulting or hurtful to the premier. And so I've spoken to some of his uh, advisors and people around him, and they are, they are concerned that, you know, he's being treated like, you know, the radioactive uh, guy at the Thanksgiving dinner table. But uh, he's, you know, he, he won 76 seats this, you know, a year ago in Ontario. Uh, he, he, they, they feel he should have some political cachet still. And it, it, any plans for him to come out, make a late appearance, big push for Andy in the, in the final going? Well, you see, I don't know if he will because I, I have I keep hearing from his folks that he's going to sit on his hands till October twenty second, and then he can you know be magnanimous or he can be triumphalist or he can be whatever. I don't know, um, but I, I I don't know. I think I I hear mixed signals because he's being told by some people that you know what he shouldn't sit idly by. It's not good for him, and by others he's 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 being told you know what just keep your powder dry. It's hard for him. He you know Mr. Ford. He is a uh, guy who wears his heart on his sleeve, I, I guess we could say. And I think that that is, it is not fun for him to be, you know, Justin Trudeau's punching bag and then Voldemort to uh, Andrew Scheer, and, you know, <laughs> he who shall not be named. Rob Benzie from the Toronto Star. Appreciate you being on the program. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks, Alan. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for spending some time in ahead this segment. We're going to talk weed. We're going to talk the devil's lettuce. We have an update on the official price of marijuana in this country. Has it gone higher or the other way? Plus an interesting question about etiquette. What do you do if your housekeeper inadvertently eats your THC-laced chocolate bar? How do you handle that? Is there a card? That plus, and this is sobering, the number of people who regularly drive high and say, I'm not going to stop doing it. That is all coming up. But we begin in the courts where there is a fascinating court ruling expected today. The top court of this province is expected to rule in the case of a Toronto-area family that fought to keep their daughter on life support after she was declared brain dead. 
Akisha McKitty was 27 when doctors declared her dead by neurological criteria in September of 2017 that followed the drug overdose that left her unconscious. Her relatives went to court to prevent doctors from taking her off life support, arguing that her Christian faith defines death as the cessation of heartbeat, not brain function. They argued that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms requires doctors to make accommodations for religious beliefs in making a determination of death, and they were granted an injunction. So McKitty was kept on a respirator. In the summer of 2018, an Ontario Superior Court judge ruled against the family, saying the Charter does not apply to McKitty in this particular case. Then the family challenged that ruling, and that brings us to today. The appeal, however, will have no impact on McKitty herself. Her heart stopped in December of 2018, rendering her dead in her family's view. To talk more about the implications of a ruling on this and what it means for Canadians as a whole, I am pleased to welcome Carrie Bowman, bioethicist from the University of Toronto, who I believe is down at the court case today. Hi, Carrie. Hello. What are we expecting today, timing, and what do you think the judges will say? Timing, I don't know. These things are so hard to predict. I think it's, I think it's pretty close, but I really can't say. I'm going to guess when, you, when I answer your question. Um, I'm going to guess that they're probably going to uphold the fact that brain death uh, is uh, a legitimate form of death and that there may not be a charter right. I could be wrong. I really could be wrong, but I think that's my best guess. And I guess the next step will be Supreme Court. Either way, this will probably continue to wind its way up. Yeah, it probably could. And, you know, many people see this as, as you know, don't take this in, in many ways very seriously at all. They would say, you know, if a person's brain dead, they are well and truly dead. Uh, I'm not saying they're not. But what I would say is, you know, de- death is defined in different cultures, different religions, in different ways. And the method that we would have in Canada is brain death. And remember, that's very different than other forms of coma or persistent vegetative state. That's a very formal clinical diagnosis, and that is not given to a lot of Canadians. But brain death, because we have a doctor's declaration of death, that has always been, when I say always going back into the 60s, been an acceptable uh, definition of death. Uh, It's now been challenged both in the United States and in Canada a couple of times. So it is very important that we have some clarity on this. Um, And when I say challenge, just as you spoke about in your intro, that in fact the family in this case is saying it does not meet our religious definition of death. So, you know, it's quite interesting. So I I think part of this is going to be, do we let doctors determine that, or do we have some other criteria? Do we? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in the United States, and we we know there's 50 states, two of those states uh, have allowed religious exemption in some cases, and I believe the states are both New York and New Jersey. Um, You know, different religions define this in different ways. For some, and not all, Orthodox Jews, it could be problematic. Uh, As we're hearing in this case, they're of a Christian background, but we all know there's many Christian backgrounds. And even within Asian societies, there can be some pretty strong differences in perceptions as to what actually constitutes death, because some cultures would say, you know, when the heart stops, that's death. Um, in Western culture, we generally accept, I'm going to be a little philosophical here, but I think therefore I am, 
Rene Descartes? I don't think, therefore I'm not. We, we generally accept that, but not everyone does. And I, so I, I would actually say this is a very important decision. Carrie Bowman is a bioethicist from the University of Toronto who is keeping an eye on the courts today, and we are expecting that that ruling perhaps today is what we're thinking, Carrie. Yes, we are. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Carrie. I appreciate you being on the You're program. You're welcome. Take care. All Bye. right. Let's turn our minds to pot and the cost of weed. Stats Canada says the average cost of a gram of cannabis fell 6.4% in the third quarter. The legal price falling for the first time, but illicit weed continues to be cheaper. The government agency says the overall price of cannabis fell to $7.37 per gram compared with $7.87 per gram in the second quarter. So I'm wondering when you're buying illegal weed, did you say, hey, listen, according to Stats Can, I only owe you $7.37 or whatever it might be. But all of that... doesn't really mask what we're really facing on the roads, does it? Because there is new data now that suggests that cannabis-impaired driving is misunderstood by people. There's a new poll that shows 1.2 million Ontario drivers have at some point driven high after consuming cannabis. Teresa DeFelice from the CAA, South Central Ontario branch, is with me on the line. Teresa, you surprised at all by these numbers? A little bit. It's a little concern. It's more. It's more alarming than anything else. Um, but probably not totally surprised. When I've done this before on the program, I ask people to call in. Call in. Call me if you're high. The light. The the phone. And I, I shouldn't laugh, but the phones just light up. If you pardon the pun. And people are always like, "Well, it's not a problem at all." How how do we convince people otherwise? It's really unfortunate. I think people who have been doing this for a while feel that you know they have a data situation so therefore it must be safe uh, our data showed that there were people who think that they drive the same or better when they're high but we know from various types of research that it does impact your driving abilities and and so just because it hasn't had an effect doesn't mean that it's still an okay thing to do I've been watching some sports on TV, and I've been seeing a lot more ads trying to convince Canadians, sometimes in a funny way, that, you know, driving high is no laughing matter. Do you think that is what we need? Uh, Definitely public education is something that the respondents of this survey said think there needs to be more. Uh, more about what exactly the penalties are, what the police are doing to under, you know, be able to catch people who are driving high or test whether people are driving high. And we do know the police need better tools for sure. Um, so I think that's part of the challenge is people don't, don't have a full understanding of the legal implications of driving high. It is uh, interesting as we head into uncharted waters, especially since we still don't have any kind of real roadside testing at all available to the police. Teresa, thank you. Appreciate you being on the program. My pleasure. And quickly, a letter to Toronto Life, and I'll read this to you. My cleaning lady helped herself to a chocolate bar from my fridge and ended up in the ER. This is a letter to Urban Diplomat. This is a a thing that they do in Toronto Life where you write in for advice. So this is the person who's writing this in. It was a pot edible, which she could not have known. I feel terrible. She had no idea what was wrong with her and was really shaken. I want to make it up to her somehow, but my husband says I'm an idiot and should fire her for taking something without asking. 
what should I do? If your cleaning lady comes into your house and eats a pot edible and has to go to the ER, how do you handle that? I think that's a big tip. I think that, I think that, I don't, I think you're heading to the hallmark. I don't think you're getting yourself a large amount of cash and saying, I am sorry, also don't eat my chocolate. Welcome to the program. We want to spend some time talking about what's happening in Syria with Turkey because it is very concerning, obviously, for world peace, but also has real ramifications for the U.S. leadership and politics in the United States. The president of Turkey has now announced that a Turkish military operation into Syria has begun. The president saying on his official Twitter account Wednesday, and where have we seen that before, that the operation named Peace Spring, yeah, yeah, Peace Spring, and we're going to bring peace this spring with all our giant guns. He said the operation aims to eradicate the threat of terror against Turkey. Earlier, Turkish television reports said Turkish jets had bombed Syrian Kurdish positions across the border from Turkey. Turkey has long threatened an attack on Kurdish fighters, whom Ankara, and Ankara is the capital of Turkey, considers to be terrorists. President Donald Trump agreed recently to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria and essentially hand control to Turkey. And a Kurdish official says Turkey is now targeting civilians in this attack on Syrian soil. The U.S.-backed Kurdish-led force in northern Syria says Turkish warplanes have started targeting civilian areas in northern Syria. Mustafa Bali of the Syrian Democratic Forces says the airstrikes have caused a huge panic among people of the region. Bali's tweet came shortly after Turkish President Erdogan announced that the Turkish offensive into northeast Syria had begun. Turkey has been massing troops for an attack against Kurdish fighters that Ankara considers a terror group. I'm Charles Tuladesma. And of course, this has had ramifications and ripples right around the world. Here's Ian Pinnell with more on the reaction from inside Turkey and from around the world. Inside Turkey, President Erdogan will enjoy fairly widespread support for this move against the Kurds. But elsewhere, in Europe and in Russia and in Syria and in other countries, even back in the United States, there's been widespread criticism of President Trump's sudden decision after a phone call with President Erdogan to pull his forces away from the border, therefore opening the way to the attack. So that is interesting. And a top European official is now calling on Turkey... A top NATO official, pardon me, this is a European official, I have two of these here, is calling on Turkey to halt its military operation in northern Syria and is warning that the EU, not NATO, pardon me, EU will not pay to help Ankara set up a safe zone there because the EU currently pays Turkey $6.6 billion to help that country cope with the almost 4 million Syrian refugees on its territory. And that is in exchange for stopping migrants leaving from Europe. Essentially, that's why the migrants are stuck there, because Turkey won't let them through, and the EU pays for that. But now, Ankara says, well, it wants more money because it's concerned that thousands more Syrians could cross the border. And why would they be doing that? Possibly because Turkey's attacking them. Now, this decision has created a rift among traditional Donald Trump allies. Allies who have stood with the president through many other issues, but on this one, 
have decided enough is enough. The move abandoned Syrian Kurds who fought with U.S. troops against Islamic State militants, leaving them vulnerable to the offensive by Turkey, who sees the Kurds as terrorists. Amid strong criticism from GOP allies, the president says he's focusing on the big picture and ending stupid, endless wars by bringing home American troops. He tweets in all caps, going into the Middle East is the worst decision ever made in the history of our country. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham tells Fox and Friends the decision to pull troops back will be the president's biggest mistake. Sagar Magani at the White House. And check this out. Even evangelist leader and Trump enabler Pat Robertson is warning that the president could lose all support from his base of evangelicals. And I want you to listen to this because it is kind of jaw-dropping. Here is Pat Robertson speaking on one of his television cable thingy-majobbers. President who allowed Khashoggi to be cut in pieces uh, without any repercussions whatsoever is now allowing the Christians and the Kurds to be massacred by the Turks. And I believe, and I want to say this with great uh, solemnity, the president of the United States is in danger of losing the mandate of heaven if he permits this to happen. Losing the mandate of heaven. That is evangelist Pat Robertson speaking about Donald Trump and his decision to allow Turkey to move into Syria and to attack Kurdish-held areas. And that operation is underway now. To the NBA and China. China? Thank you. The NBA has postponed Wednesday's scheduled mass media sessions in Shanghai for the Brooklyn Nets and the Lakers, and it remains unclear now if the teams are going to play in China this week at all. They were practicing in Shanghai today. There are other NBA events in advance of the start of China games. Those have been called off in the ongoing rift that began after the general manager of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morley, posted a tweet that showed support for anti-government protesters in Hong Kong. Quote, given the fluidity of the situation, today's media availability has been postponed, said the league. On Tuesday in Tokyo, the commissioner of the NBA, Adam Silver, said he supports Morley's right to free speech. Now, a number of Chinese companies have suspended their partnerships with the NBA in recent days. Chinese state broadcaster will not broadcast that Lakers-Nets game at all. And San Antonio coach Greg Popovich, Pop, speaking in Miami, says he supports how Silver's handling this situation. Quote, it wasn't easy for him to say. He said this in an environment fraught with possible economic peril, but he sided with the principles that we all hold dearly. So Mr. Silver has sort of said, I respect the right to say this, but yet we still want these economic ties. And again, this is the extension of soft power. And I'm watching on Twitter already, right now, in China, protesters are being escorted out of games, protesters that have signs supporting Hong Kong and their demand for more autonomy from the communist Chinese government. Continues to reverberate. Some breaking news on a story that we were talking about a little earlier in the program. Ontario's top court now has dismissed an appeal by a Toronto-area family that fought to keep their daughter on life support after she was declared brain dead. 
Takesha McKitty was 27 when doctors declared her dead by neurological criteria. That was back in September 2017. The family successfully fought a court injunction to have her kept on life support as that wound its way through the courts. Eventually, her heartbeat stopped. She did die, but this continues. And again, in the top court, just now coming out, the appeal by the Toronto area family that sought to overturn a earlier decision that said doctors had the right to remove the young woman from life support because she was clinically declared dead, that that has been dismissed. All right, let's move to your boss and your calls coming up. Have you ever quit a job just simply because the boss was a jerk? I want your stories coming up. Rob, tell the people how they call in. You can call 870-6400 or star 640 on cell. And here's why we are talking about this, because we have new polling information that suggests two out of five Canadian professionals have had to quit a job because their boss was bad. The survey found that 39% of respondents had resigned because of a bad manager. Evangeline Barrowbay is a branch manager for Robert Half, who commissioned this report, and joins me on the line. Hi, Evangeline. Hi, how are you? I'm really good. What do you mean by bad boss? Well, bad boss can take a, a few different forms. I mean, there's, there's individuals that can be micromanagers, so... Um, you know, they're, they're on top of their people with every little thing, or you have um, individuals that are tough to reach, so they're almost the exact opposite. Um, you're not even sure where they are half the time, so they're not really supporting their teams. And, um, or you can just have uh, managers who um, are uh, just mean to their employees. To, uh, just jerks. For lack of a just, word. just plain old just... <laughs> It's not that you're not available or that you micromanage me. It's just that you're a jerk. Right. <laughs> uh, so, so, what are you, so what are you finding out in terms of how prevalent it is that people, you know, actually say, well, free, take this job and shove it? Well, you know, as the, uh, the, the, the survey indicated, 39% of people are, are saying this. And we certainly see this as really one of the, the top reasons why individuals, um, you know, approach us looking for new roles is, is largely individuals leave their managers, not their companies. Um, because, um, you know, they particularly career uh, individuals who are looking to grow their careers and, um, are wanting to be heavily invested in their in their in their roles. If you don't have that manager that's supportive or or you know is being a jerk, um, if uh, then they're not going to get you where you need to go. Um, and so they and, and people have options right now. Um, so they're they're going to be looking elsewhere. I think it's one thing to talk to an employment recruiter company as such as yourself and say, listen, you know, my boss is a jerk. I want another job. I'm going to suggest that's not such a good idea in a job interview. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) Um, no, it's not. And and generally, um, you know, if if you're out, uh, you know, looking for work because, you know, this is the motivator for doing that um, and, and, and you're you know, prospective employer says, why are you looking for a new opportunity? You can just say that um, the organization that you're currently working with um, 
you know, the, maybe the environment or the growth opportunities aren't there that you're looking for, and that's why you're looking to to move on. Um, one, one, of the, one of the one of the pieces of advice I'll just jump in. One of the pieces of advice that yeah. I got early on for job interviews when they ask you that is they said that one of the best things to say is that someone else had there's been some a reorganization and someone's in a position that's sort of blocking your advancement. I mean, that that doesn't sound like sour grapes, but you just can't go any further in that particular organization because of that. Would you advise right. yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Just need to be diplomatic. Okay. So, eventually, let's move, let's turn back to these uh, jerk bosses, and we're going to get some calls in a couple of minutes from people who have, you know, quit jobs because their boss has been a bad manager. What's your advice, then, to managers who are trying to retain staff? Well, I would look look inward. Um, so what's a, what's a great idea is to do um, either surveys, um, so get a sense of, you know, what people's comments are, but obviously keeping it anonymous. Um, but also just having one-on-one interaction uh, with your with your teams on a regular basis, and and just you know asking them, you know what could I do better for you? What what do you need from me? Um, and having that open, uh, transparent dialogue with people uh, will often flesh out some of those things, um, and so that you can then make those improvements. Evangeline Barube is a branch manager with Robert Half who has commissioned this new report that says 39% of respondents have quit a job because of a bad boss. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you so much, Alan. Let's go to the lines, shall we? And here's somebody from Toronto who we will not name. You ever quit a job because of a bad boss? Yes, hi. Hi. Have you ever done that? Yes, I have done this. Um, So I was... um I was in. I'm, I'm in management. I was in management a few years back, and the company I was working for, the bosses were just downright, um, almost ignorant and uh, rude, and um, just kind of treated employees however they wanted to treat them. There were they would make comments uh, about your person, about your clothing, about your shoes, um, just absolutely rude and. Um, there came a time where I couldn't take it anymore, and I just basically told them, hey. Did you like the job you know, otherwise, other than just the, the, the this was just the attitude of the managers that said, you know, this is not for me? Oh, besides the fact they were overworked, underpaid, and then on top of that, um, rude bosses. I mean, who's going to who's gonna handle that? And, <laughs> so and, eventually, yeah. just went, hey, you know what? This is not enough money for me to be taking this kind of crap from you, and... Now, did you do the proverbial throw the lit match over your shoulders? You walked out the door and just blow it up and just like, and I mean that figuratively. Yeah, I literally used the words, you can take this job and shove it. Johnny Paycheck for the win. Thank you. Alicia, appreciate you being on the program. Thank you so much. I think everybody has got one of those. You got one of those? Where you just you just walk right. Well, I don't know. Everybody's dreamed of doing that. The old walk in and say, take this job and shove it. But have you ever actually had to quit a job just simply because you had a bad manager? Turning to music news before we run out of time today, the olive green cardigan that Kurt Cobain wore during Nirvana's MTV Unplugged performance. This one. It's headed to auction. This was... Uh, this was on repeat for me 
for about five years in the 90s. Cobain was 27 when he killed himself April 5th, 1994. The sweater, plus a custom fender built in 93 that Cobain used during the In Utero Tour, will be offered during a two-day auction of rock memorabilia this month. How much would you pay for Kurt Cobain's green sweater? Other music news, long before he was a music icon, George Michael was something else. He was awkward, chubby, insecure, and he went by the nickname Yog. Here's a little wham for you. A loving portrait of a young Michael is offered up in a new book by his friend and former bandmate Andrew, Andrew Ridgely. You'll remember he was the unfamous guy from Wham. His book, Wham, George Michael and Me, is part memoir, part monument to one of the biggest pop stars of the 80s.